Our scripture is from Luke 7, in a series on the Gospel of Luke and our focus on the kingdom of God. And this morning, our story is Luke 7, verses 36 through 50. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at a table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answers, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled a debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the large debt, the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but, the time, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The word of the Lord. Be to God. Lord, we uh, have an opportunity to approach you this morning through your word. May we approach by way of the woman to know your forgiveness and to know how that forgiveness uh, unleashes love, love for you, Lord, and love for others. So be with us as we hear your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Forgiveness of sins is the key that unlocks the kingdom of God, and unlocking the kingdom of God is to unlock a whole world of possibilities it is to open up a whole alternative moral universe. Many of you are familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, written by C.S. Lewis. In that series of books, uh, Lewis imagines a parallel world, uh, an enchanted world called Narnia, that intersects and overlaps with our world but is largely not accessible. Uh, the main protagonists of the story are a group of children that stumble into Narnia um, through the closet door of a wardrobe in, a, in an empty room in a farmhouse. And the wardrobe is made out of this wood of this magic tree. 
And when they happen to go through the wardrobe or, or in it and they go through it, they find themselves on the other side in this um, enchanted magical universe, one in which there are similarities but major differences between Narnia and the world that they, they live in. Because Narnia operates at a whole different moral and spiritual level and plane than, than the ordinary world. Now, Lewis, I don't think, intended the Chronicles of Narnia to be, or Narnia itself, to be a kind of illustration of the kingdom of God, nor do I think the wardrobe closet is a metaphor for the forgiveness of sins. However, entering the kingdom of God is very much like entering Narnia. How you get access to the kingdom is not how you would expect. Um, its passageway is narrow in an out-of-the-way place. It's very humble, it's not flashy at all. And it runs counter to the way we think about the world morally. Uh, but in passing through the wardrobe closet, you enter a different moral universe, a different spiritual universe in which you can become a very different kind of person. And that's what you see um, with the main characters, Lucy and Susan and Edmund and Peter. As uh, they enter as ordinary children. They enter as ordinary children, but as they are drawn into the story and the drama of Narnia, they change. They become different kinds of people. They, they go from just being children to actually um, royalty in some cases. They grow in valor and honor. They develop a sense of deep moral purpose in their lives and become different kinds of people. And that's how I think the forgiveness of sins works as a passageway. As a passageway into the kingdom of God, it opens up to us the world in a different kind of way. It allows us to operate in the world according to a different set of moral and spiritual principles. And so this morning I want us to reflect on this idea of how forgiveness of sins, in a sense, unlocks the world to us, unlocks the kingdom of God. And in particular, what it does what we see in this story is it unlocks the love of God. The forgiveness of sin unlocks the love of God. And to unlock the love of God in your life is to, in a sense, unlock the world. Now, what we see in this story are two different ways of approaching God that result in two very different kinds of um, social interactions with Jesus. Now, when we read this story, the way we know it, it's even titled in most of our Bibles, The Story of the Sinful Woman. <laughs> uh, but this is really a story about two people, uh, a sinful woman, unnamed, and a Pharisee named Simon. Both are seeking Jesus. And Simon is the one who actually invites Jesus into his home. I mean, he's curious. He's intrigued by this man, Jesus. And I think it's a genuine uh, you know, genuine interest in who Jesus is and what he's about. And at the same time, there is a woman who appears that's also seeking Jesus. Both are seekers, but both come, you know, uh, proverbially from other sides of the track. You couldn't find a more polar opposite to Simon the Pharisee than this unnamed woman. They are different socially and religiously and economically and morally. However, to the surprise, and this is the surprise of the story, 
is that the one whom Jesus approves is not the one you would expect. It is not the well-educated, morally upright, high-functioning, wealthy male named Simon. It is the unnamed sinful woman whose life is a mess. And I think what you have here playing out in this story is exactly what Jesus was talking about in his Sermon on the Plain when he says, and he starts, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who weep. Blessed are those who are hungry. But woe to the rich. Woe to the satisfied. Woe to those whom everybody loves and adores. Simon and the sinful woman, in a sense, represent these two different approaches to God. One approach Jesus approves, and one approach Jesus rejects. And the difference, the difference between each approach comes down to one thing, (laughs) a differing awareness of the forgiveness of sins in that person's life. This whole story turns on the, the meaning of the forgiveness of sins. Now, what's so interesting about this story is the way that you have this clash of alternative moral and spiritual orders, if you will, all around the person of Jesus. Simon invites Jesus into his home for a feast, and to remember in ancient culture in this time, this is not the kind of event that would be taking place, you know, behind closed doors in a closed room. Um, You know, these feasts were held in, you know, what, basically patio areas, a portico or a veranda, um, in which there would be a table with cushions down there, a low table with cushions, and people would come and sit around the table in the cushions. So um, people who are passing by, who are neighbors, would, would be able to see, right, um, and could approach in. And so that's how this, this woman comes in. She hears that Jesus is eating at this Pharisee's house. But social decorum and, you know, a guy like Simeon or Simon and his high status certainly would have you know, created some invisible walls and barriers to which would keep the wrong people out. It's incredible that this woman would have dared to enter into this social space, right, this situation. It seems like everybody knows who she is. She has a reputation, and it's not a good one. And most likely, well, what does that mean that she was a sinful woman? Most likely... Uh, she was a prostitute. She was a sex worker. She is not the type of person who would have been welcomed at Simon's table or invited anytime, right? And she certainly would have known this, that she was not welcome there, um, that this was not the place for her. The only thing that would have greeted her there would be shame and rejection. And yet, she is bold enough to come to the table because of who else is sitting there. Jesus, right? And and here's the first kind of point I want to make about how forgiveness of sins unlocks an alternative moral universe. One of the assumptions of this story is that this woman seems to have, she knows who Jesus is, right? She wouldn't have come if she didn't. She seems to have had some kind of encounter with Jesus, most likely just a face in the crowd hearing him preach about the good news of the kingdom, right, where Jesus promises uh, release from debts and oppression. She heard this message of forgiveness, right, of the kingdom of God, and so she understands that she can be forgiven. 
She understands that that is a possibility. She probably in her wildest dreams never thought that that was ever possible for a woman like her to be forgiven of her sins. And I think this is, this is what draws her to the table. She comes to Jesus not necessarily looking for something from him, but she comes simply to serve him, to show her love to him, to show her gratitude to him. I think this is key to understanding um, this whole story. And it's key to understand what brings this woman to the table. It is the experience of forgiveness that draws her into uh, a very threatening and dangerous social situation, which she would have never dared to enter for fear of being shamed and rejected. We don't often think about this aspect of the story, but I think Jesus' promise of forgiveness empowers this woman with a kind of courage an emotional confidence that allows her to adventure and kind of violate these traditional boundaries that normally would have kept her in place. Forgiveness, again, has, in a sense, unlocked the world to her socially in a new way. Prior to forgiveness, she probably would have never dreamed of entering that situation except to beg, right? To beg for something. But she's not there to beg. Um, actually quite the opposite. She's actually there, and she ends up playing the role of the host of the dinner, right? She shows hospitality to Jesus that Simon, the actual host and convener of the feast, fails to show. She takes over the dinner party, and again, it's this, it's this incredible reversal of roles that we have here. I think what gives her the courage to do this is that all her attention is on Jesus. All her attention is on Jesus. She's not paying attention to the others sitting around her, no doubt, judging her, whispering under their breath, their breath to one another, who is this woman? How does she get here? Or kind of piercing stares of, you don't belong here, leave. No doubt, that was all happening. Her focus is on Jesus and him alone. And it's his approval and his affirmation that so far outweighs any of the shame happening at the table towards her. She's so focused on Jesus that all that other stuff melts away. Now, we live in a world in which there are various invisible social and cultural boundaries and walls and barriers that separate us from one another. Their class, their education, their race, their interpersonal and we're always sort of navigating these different social worlds with a lot of anxiety and insecurity. We're very sensitive about being accepted or rejected or asking this question, do I really belong here? Are these my people? Will they receive me? We're very sensitive to uh, any slights or, or perceptions. We're constantly thinking about what other people think about us. But one of the effects of forgiveness of sin in our life is that it begins to melt away the shame that separates us from others. Forgiveness melts away shame. It melts away the social boundaries that sort of keep us in place, keep us locked in. Now, uh, shame is a social phenomenon. It's something we experience in a, in a deeply personal way but it's kind of enforced and ordered uh, socially, how we relate, how we make our way in the world. 
And the experience of shame is an experience of, of disconnection. Uh, shame drives us to disconnect. And you think about when Adam and Eve, and they, they eat of the tree, and what is their instinct and response when God comes looking for them? It's to hide. It's to cover themselves. It's the blame shift, right? That's the function of shame. It pushes us away from others. It causes us to disconnect. And I think that dynamic of shame in our lives because of our sinful nature is, is always in the background. It's like this buzzing. You know, have you ever heard, like, if you're really quiet, you just hear this, this zzz. You hear it now, actually. <laughs> and you look around, where is it? Where is it? That's shame. That, that's always buzzing in most of our heads in the background. Just this, this tension, this anxiety, this, this little thing, right? Forgiveness of sins and being in the presence of Jesus begins to melt shame. There's a song we sing called uh, Sing to Jesus. And one of the lines I thought of as I was working on this sermon, it goes like this, Sing to Jesus, the Lord of our shame, the Lord of our sinful hearts. He is our great Redeemer. Sing to Jesus, honor His name, sing of His faithfulness, pouring out His life unto death. Jesus is the Lord of our shame. As this woman discovers, his forgiveness has the power to remove shame. Now, it doesn't remove it from the hearts of those who are shaming her at that table, but being in Jesus' presence and focusing on Jesus allows her to stay in that place without the shame. She focuses on Jesus instead of the others. And again, Think about the power of this. The power of forgiveness to liberate you to be in the world in a different kind of way because you're not navigating the world worried about all the shame and possible rejection or not belonging. But the only way you can do that is by focusing on Jesus, right? Receiving his forgiveness. Now, in Jesus' time, the offer to forgive sins was a scandalous offer. That's why at the very end of the story, the question is asked, who is this who even forgives sins? How can he do that? And part of that, how can he do that, is he can't do that. Right? Forgiveness isn't something you can just offer to people. God was not necessarily in the business of just forgiving people. And society of that time was really structured around the absence of forgiveness. That, that world and that society was structured around the absence of forgiveness. And so that means that the social world was sort of split in two large groups, right? You have sinners, scare quotes around it, and then you had the righteous. And that's how the world was ordered. There was this real sense that when a person's sin were publicly known, like in the case of this woman, that was it. That was your fate. There was no going back. There was no change in your situation. You were sort of locked in place like a prison sentence without possibility of parole. So when Jesus, in his little parable, uh, he compares forgiveness to the remitting of a financial debt. And during this time, uh, if you were deeply in debt, you could actually be imprisoned. And so the idea of being in debt is, is really closely connected with being lo in, locked up. Um, your, your possibilities are, are very limited. And so you have this idea of sin as this deep moral debt that closes off life to you. All kinds of opportunities and possibilities that others have who aren't in debt, you don't have. You're locked up. 
And the people who don't have the same moral debt as you, people like Simon, they can leverage the fact that they don't have that over you and against you. So then you have Jesus coming along. He's proclaiming the forgiveness of sins. He's eating with sinners as this rabbi, which is scandalous. But not only that, sinners are just starting to come to the table of Pharisees, unheard of. This is totally turning the world upside down. The world's just turned upside down, all because Jesus is offering the forgiveness of sins. And really, at the end of the day, this is why one of the central reasons why the religious leaders conspire to kill him. Now, one thing that everyone rightly understood, both Pharisee and sinful woman, about the forgiveness of sins is that it wasn't free. It wasn't free. It cost somebody. Sin is a debt. If sin is a debt and forgiveness is the remitting of the debt, then somebody has to pay the difference, right? Somebody has to pay the difference. But what nobody could see at the time is that Jesus himself would be the one to pay the difference. That's what we mean when we say he died for our sins, right? He paid the debt. Now, the rub, the rub of this story is the difference in sin debt or perceived sin debt between Simon and the woman. <clears throat> the woman had a sin debt that she could not pay off in a hundred lifetimes, right? She knew this. There was no digging out of debt for her, and there was no possibility for bankruptcy. Simon, on the other hand, he had a pretty manageable sin debt, or maybe no sin debt at all. But ironically, the fact that Simon doesn't have a sin debt puts him at a, at a serious disadvantage in his relationship to Jesus. He seems emotionally and spiritually handicapped because, unlike this woman, his forgiveness needs are very, very low. Now, as modern people, we might ask this question, well, who are we more like? Are we more like the woman or are we more like Simon? You might be tempted to say, well, I'm more like the woman. But I would submit that actually we're more like Simon. See, we have a very low forgiveness need in our relationship to Jesus. But we arrive at the position in a very different way than Simon arrived at it. See, for Simon, Simon believed in sin and the weightiness of sin, but he did not believe in the forgiveness of sin. But this was not a problem for him because he, he felt pretty confident in his own righteousness. We, on the other hand, we believe in forgiveness. We believe that God just gives forgiveness to anybody who wants it, but we don't really believe in sin. That's the difference. We believe in forgiveness, but we don't really believe in sin. Now, I'm not saying that we don't believe that we're sinners or that sin happens, but we don't really in a deep way think that, we're, that our sin is all that bad, right? Uh, the Puritans, we don't really believe in what the Puritans called the sinfulness of sin, right? See, for us, sin really only bothers us, and we only feel the weight of sin and its consequences when we hurt others, or we hurt ourselves. But we don't really, you know, we don't really think that God is all that troubled by our misdeeds. That sin is um, something that's truly an offense, a truly a, a form of breaking God's will and command to which we are held to account. And the, something really important or significant comes about because of this unspoken belief that we have. And it's this, 
it's because God's forgiveness just really doesn't have a whole lot of power to really make a difference in our life. I mean, I, <laughs> a lot of times, I mean, I, I've had the experience of talking with people and, and you know, like, well, do you know you're forgiven? Yeah, I know I'm forgiven, but my real problem are all these other things or these other people or these other things. And it, it seems like the forgiveness of sins is like, yeah, we believe in the forgiveness of sins, but it doesn't really do anything for us anymore. It doesn't really change us. It doesn't thrill our hearts. It doesn't, it's not like the center. It's not life, tra- life transforming like it was in the case of this woman. And I think that's in part because, again, our, our forgiveness needs are very low. <laughs> we have a very low view of our sin. And so then we have a very low view of God's grace. See, when sin doesn't have any real spiritual consequences, that means that grace doesn't have any real world consequences. It's not life transforming. But the reality is this, and this is the truth. The truth is that sin is our deepest problem. Sin is at the root of all the shame that you're experiencing in your life. It's not just because other people are shaming you, but your sinful nature itself (laughs) creates and generates shame. Sin is our most profound problem which means that forgiveness is our greatest human need, whether we realize it or not. Now, Simon, he, um, he could not see this. He could not see that sin was a real problem for him, which is why forgiveness for him is kind of a scandal. The breakthrough to grace for Simon is very much going to look like the breakthrough to grace for us, which is very ironic, which is to come to know ourselves truly as sinners. I think for modern people, part of our breakthrough to the grace of God in a way that's truly transforming is to know ourselves as sinners, to recognize that all the problems in my life, all the people I'm struggling with, all the emotion or the anger or the loneliness, that beneath the surface of all these things is a much deeper and more profound problem that they're just a sort of secondary symptom of, which is my alienation from God. I have a God problem. My biggest problem in life is always God problems. It's not just people problems. It's God problems. And the only answer to that is forgiveness and God's grace. And when we do that, when we come to know ourselves as sinners in a deep down kind of way, something happens. Something happens. The love of God is unleashed in our lives. Forgiveness has the power to unlock the love of God in our life. Simon was an emotionally and spiritually stunted man. The universe of God's love was closed off to him. He is sitting at this table, and he is judging Jesus, and he's judging this woman, and he's cold and rational in his relationship. He probably thinks of himself as a great lover of God and of neighbor, but what he can't see is that he has a shrunken heart, right? He doesn't know the world of God's love. That is closed off to him. He's like the Grinch, right, in Dr. Seuss' book. The Grinch who stole Christmas. Why does the Grinch hate Christmas so much? Because his heart was two sizes smaller than the average human heart, right? That's Simon's problem. And that's a perfect picture of what sin does to us. It shrinks our hearts. It shrinks our hearts. It shrinks our humanity. It narrows us as people, and it blinds us. 
But when forgiveness comes in, what forgiveness do is it begins to heal our heart, and it begins to then open us up to love, to true love, to the love of God. It expands our heart. It repairs our heart. And it is precisely this that you see playing out in the actions of the woman. Having heard the promises of God, of forgiveness, this leads to this lavish outpouring of love from this woman. And Luke records it in exquisite detail. There's, there's probably no other um, description of loving Jesus that is more poetic and powerful and just emotionally uh, present than this one here. When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, weeping. Most people think that those tears are not tears of sorrow, but actually of joy. Weeping, and she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. She does not make this display of affection in order to get something from Jesus, but as a response to Jesus, as a response to forgiveness in her life. And this brings us to the punchline of the whole story. When Jesus says, therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. And because of that, she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. He who is forgiven little, loves little. Now, the great truth at the heart of this story is that the kingdom of God is unlocked in our lives through forgiveness. And forgiveness unlocks love. The grace of God unlocks the love of God. The grace of God unlocks the love of God, the love of neighbor. It's like, again, the closet door in the wardrobe that takes you into Narnia. Grace is what brings you into the kingdom, and grace is what keeps you in the kingdom. Now, I think this is an important story especially if you feel like you're in a place in your life where your love for God and your love for others has grown cold and stony. And I think sometimes we struggle as, as Christians. We struggle to love others. We struggle to love God. And we think, well, I need to try harder. I need to work harder. I need to redouble my efforts. I need, to, I need by sheer force of will, to, to, to love. But what this story teaches us that's so important is that the path to loving God more and loving others more is the path of grace. It is not to look at ourselves and it's not to look at all the other people sitting around the table, but it is to focus and to fix our gaze and affection on Jesus. And we are in an even better position than this woman to do that because all she had were the words of Jesus that promised forgiveness but she didn't know actually how Jesus would affect that forgiveness. But we have more than words. We have his deeds. And it's the same lavish love which this woman pours out on Jesus is actually a foreshadowing of how he will love us. He will love us with the same passion, the same intensity, the same vulnerability, as this woman loves him. For it is on the cross that he pours out his life 
It is on the cross that he weeps. It is on the cross that he washes our feet. It is on the cross that his life is poured out like an alabaster flask full of ointment. It is on the cross that his, he achieves for us the forgiveness of sins. And so, friends, it is making this the contemplation, <laughs> focusing on the cross and what he did for us that unleashes our love for him and our love for one another. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we would have a clear picture in our minds and our hearts that we can hold fast to, like this woman was able to at table, tuning out all of the shame, tuning out all of the judgment, all of the worry, focusing on Jesus and loving him because she knows that he loves her and has forgiven her. And it is true for us as well. I pray, Lord, that we would, as your people, take and receive the words of Jesus' forgiveness, not just as a spiritual platitude that doesn't move anything in our lives, but as a truth that leads to deep transformation, a truth that allows us to live in the world in a different kind of way. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.